Hey Mo. How's it how's it going? Hey oh Daylight come <laughs> and the podcast go. <laughs> hey. hey. I say, say hey, we say hey. Okay. All right, never mind. Wait, <laughs> copyright, so we can't go that far into it. Um, oh, right, right, right. Yeah. Oh, by the way, let's give the listeners some context. So we, uh, we've we been fidgeting with audio settings for about 20 minutes, 25 mm-hmm. minutes now, uh, because my mic broke. You know, my discount bullshit Costco mic broke. And um, uh, yeah, so right now, the, the, the setup that I got figured out is my headphones are manually hooked up to the computer through just an analog you know cable um but when we use the headset mic nobody can hear shit or it's like ticking in the background so i'm using the laptop mic which means i have to be like unnaturally bent over uh and i'm yelling at a mic somewhere in this thing I i don't know where it is but hopefully it doesn't suck when it goes to to editing so, so because we do this audio only, I think like a, a good description of it is you have the posture of a shrimp right now over the, just hanging over the laptop, just yelling at a keyboard, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like I can smell finger grease on the keyboard from like five years <laughs> oh, ago. Man. Oh, geez. Yeah. No, that's to... why, uh, on my end, I, I just, I, I put a keyboard cover, pushed it away from me and just got a wireless keyboard. That's, uh, that's too much for me. Your keyboard would stick to the wall if I threw it. I mean, I, I that that's why I got the cover because you know the whole butterfly switch BS that was very very annoying that made me go a week without a laptop. Well, um, but yeah, I think I think we all we all got to take care of devices, just generally speaking. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm on a 2014 MacBook. Um, Oof. Yeah, yeah, this is uh, this is the OG MacBook. This this was the one that was so good that they reverted back to it when they released the new one. They're just copying this one. Right. Yeah, yeah. Instead yeah. of your generation with the shitty dongles and that touch bar. Oh, the 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 dongle I kind of grew used to. I don't know how Apple pulled it off, but it was extremely annoying at the beginning. But now I'm kind of like whatever. I just gotta okay. carry it First around. First of all, a dongle sounds like something that requires medical attention. <laughs> and, and it, it's like all, something that it, it honestly sounds like something that like grows on you as you get older. It's like, oh I'm seventy, I got dongles all over me now. Yeah, I didn't take the dongle vaccine back in 2035, and now I'm stuck with this. <laughs> okay. Oh, man. Great imagery. Uh, Great imagery. Fantastic imagery. You know, thankfully, we don't have a I YouTube did. component yet because, like, it's I'm like Quasimodo yelling at the uh, laptop. <laughs> I mean, hey, hopefully, if, if we ever are, if we ever record one of these in the same room, it's going to be very interesting. I think because of how well these mics filter everything out, we're probably going to need to be in hazmat suits. And yeah, I, I was going to say, you're going to have to shower for once. Yeah. <laughs> and like no candles, nothing with a spark or flames. Cause otherwise the entire room is going to explode. Most likely. Yeah. Indeed. So what, what angry uh, Twitter DMS have you received this week? <laughs> um, not a lot, of, not a lot of angry Twitter DMS. I've actually, I scrolled back through my timeline and I noticed that a, my account has basically turned into a marketing channel for 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 this show. Um, but yeah, mo- most of the stuff on my end has been kind of like uh, prepping for you know some intensive things that are going to be happening down the road for for the product. So just very 
heading back into the, the the deep dark cave that is engineering and just making sure that everything is good to go. Um, now, what that means for let's see what what, what that means for um, hygiene is we're going to go back to that that uh, that cave beard caveman picture that I sent to you a while back. But uh, hey, that's that's the beauty of early stage startups, isn't it? Yeah. Oh yeah, the, the the beard of wisdom. Yeah, yeah. They grow better it's in kind the of dark. Like, they kind of do, to be honest. I, like, right, spending a year in the dark just building the product, and then all of a sudden, right now, I have like an open window in front of me in sunshine. It's like, I, I, yeah, I, I love it. This time last year, when you opened the window, I heard you hiss at the sun. And uh, <laughs> yeah, I hiss stuff. at the sun. Yeah, yeah, indeed. I, I, I just hiss at the sun, and then. Um, you know, change hoodies and then get back to work. Yeah. yeah. Well, but uh, how about how about you? How's how's all the I uh, I, whatever? I had an interesting exchange via DM. Interesting. Um, you know, so you know, a lot of people will point out to me like, oh, you know, this, that, or the other exit, or uh, you know, I, IPO announcements or whatever. And uh, I mean, you know me, uh, I like kind of picking through S1s and, and seeing where people are trying to bury the dog shit, uh, which recently mm -hmm. has been fun. None have been as fun as picking apart the WeWork S1. Um, oh. But every now and again, I get one of these discussions. And uh, recently, I was talking to someone who had raised uh, an amount of capital to invest in the region I'm in right now in the Middle East, North Africa. And uh, one of the things I brought up with them is, you know, listen, you have an investment banking background. I have an investment banking background. We were both in it relatively recently. And honestly, how much tech M&A did we see and how much of an appetite did we see? Right? Mm, interesting. Yeah. So that kind of spiraled into a discussion of, uh, you know, did this experiment of trying to replicate Silicon Valley outside Silicon Valley work? You know? And... He actually said that. And my response was, I mean, not even America made Silicon Valley outside of Silicon Valley. They only have one Silicon Valley. But that doesn't mean that they don't have tech ecosystems here and there kind of budding up in the States, right? You know, yeah. The quote, unquote, emerging American markets, you know? Mm -hmm. right. And um, if you look at the Genesis story of like where a tech ecosystem came from, right? So uh -huh. again, you know, me and my banker buddy, ex both of us recovering ex-bankers, uh, well, well, first off, like anyone who did anything with banking knows that that entire industry is built on uh, ridiculous amounts of stimulant narcotics. Oh, like, oh yeah. Yeah. Thankfully, you know, people are a little more mellowed out in tech, but you mm -hmm. do have a, a few foundations similar to what cocaine did for wall street on which everything is built. Okay. The, so the, the funny thing is the, the first thing that came to mind when you said wall street and narcotics was, uh, that one scene where Jonah Hill's character was like, Steve, man. <laughs> Steve. <laughs> you know, when, when you're talking to the older bankers, they're like, you guys do quaaludes? Like, no, it's not 1987. But right. <laughs> like Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, listen, we, we kind of came to this uh, sort of conclusion of um, there are always like certain necessities for a venture ecosystem to kind of flourish, right? I mean, first and foremost, you need your, you know, Stanford, Berkeley type schools where like, you know, you have these universities that churn out this great technical talent that ends up filling the ranks at all of these startups. 
Um, at the very least, you need like modern coding schools and boot camps in a place where people can kind of can kind of learn and incubate skills. Um, the other thing is, and this is the one that I could speak of more eloquently as a dude who wasn't banking, was uh, private capital markets. Um, in other words, mm -hmm. no matter how much you hate them, VCs they're kind of necessary to you know grease the wheels of the whole thing, uh, the cogs. Move the turn the wheels, yeah. grease the whatever. Anyways, so <laughs> you need, um, you know, on top of that, you need laws that allow for like free competition, free movement of like talent and capital amongst businesses. You know, things like uh, non competes have to be basically null and void. Um, uh, you know, all this legal precedent that needs to be in place for this thing for 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 a tech ecosystem to grow. Um, you also end up needing public equity markets with active investment banks to facilitate M and A. All right. So, mm -hmm. and that's, that's where I hear, that's the evidence that I hear a lot of times for there being no prospect for exits in certain markets. Right. Oh, just the lack of like IBs to facilitate M and A. Yeah. I mean, look, you walk around New York city. Okay. Walk around mm -hmm. midtown. There's 40,000 different boutique investment banks with staffs of like five to 20 people. And their bread and butter is selling companies with enterprise values of 50 to $250 million. Right. And then right. there's that lonely Valley of 250 to 1 billion where the number of acquirers is much smaller. And you're also not quite big enough to be IPOable, at least not with sizable fees for the bankers. Um, right. You know, of course, the size and exact parameters of that value kind of changes with time, but that's kind of where it's at now, right? Um, so most countries with full investment banking decisions, including many of the countries here in Middle East, North Africa, and Sub-Saharan Africa, um, they don't have what's called a TNT core. A TNT is a tech media telecom core. Now, this is the core of people that usually get cherry-picked to be associates at VCs after a couple of years of eating shit at a bank, right? Mm, okay, yeah. Uh, like me and then um uh you know because you know i got picked out of regular investment banking because there was no tnt where i was doing it you know as a discipline that did not exist really for mna it's not where the deals were um right. so yeah there's just there's just nowhere near enough deal flow to justify that position right so the question is in a lot of these mm -hmm. emerging markets where do the exits come from right so in, in web3 i said it i said it okay <laughs> Don't say the C word. Don't say the C word. Uh, I can't call you that on air. Um, anyways. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, that air. one too. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, uh, yeah. So I, where do investors expect to, to kind of see the exits, right? So mm -hmm. here's the thing. In the Middle East, North Africa region, everyone who had been in invest, in, sorry, in VC uh, from 2015 to 2017, you know, their power law big winner in the portfolio was Karim. Oh, right. Right. Now, having one super winner in the portfolio, uh, that's not new to VC. That's just how it works, right? That's just the power law. And if you Google power law, you can find tons and tons of examples and, you know, academic writings about this. Basically, yeah. what it comes down to is like, you know, the, the top 10% of your portfolio kind of returns the portfolio, kind of returns the fund uh, multiple times over and tends to outperform everything else you did. And then, you know, number two outperforms everything after that. Number three, you know, so on and so forth. So yeah, I think uh, John, John from last episode or like a couple of episodes ago brought like a very good real life application of it as, yes. as painful as it was walking through it, but he's yeah. shout out John. He's the, yeah, yeah. John, if you're listening, you owe us money anyways. So, um, <laughs> the, yeah. So in, in, when it comes to web three, 
um, you know, there are token offerings and they're on decentralized exchanges or like DEXs, you know, um, mm -hmm. and tokens are ultra super liquid, right? After your lockup mm -hmm. period as an investor, they're pretty liquid. Um, mm -hmm. Right. Oh, this is Steve. And Steve was paid $50 to kick me in the jimmies for every time I make a crypto reference. And we're at two kicks so far. Um, yeah. If, if you're listening to this now, it's because I've edited out the crying in between takes. So... <laughs> So that you know, that's that's for crypto, but we're still not seeing a ton of crypto activity here, in Middle East, North Africa, and, and some emerging markets. You know, India being a giant, mm -hmm. giant exception, but otherwise. Um, so, in, in regular boring equity companies, you have to either publicly offer your your shares an IPO, or you got to get acquired, just M and A. Right. So, mm -hmm. in the IPO markets, you know, many public markets are nowhere near developed enough to warrant a tech listing. And you'll notice many listings in what I call the baseline industries. I mean, and those are like the dividend yielding banks, real estate, state supported enterprises, basic heavy manufacturing, um, food staples, transport, logistics, you know, kind of these, what I call level zero, or sorry, layer zero industries. Right. Okay. These layer zero industries, like, you know, their existence is just a prerequisite for the existence of uh, the layer one industries that may be more sophisticated and can't function without that kind of base layer. Now I said layers, so, go ahead. Oh yeah. I was going to say, um, so, so, so what you're referring about layer one and layer one industries are basically ones that are, you know, for, for, for the lack of a better phrase, kind of built on top of the, the backs of layer zero industries. Right. So, you know, for example, you need large construction industries and, and utilities and food staples and transport and, the, and you know, banks, financial services, uh, telecoms, all of that needs to exist so that you can build something more sophisticated on top of that. Okay. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah, those layer right. zero industries kind of plug up the roles of uh, the equity exchanges in some of these regions. And on top of that, the investors in those equity uh, in those equity exchanges tend to be from the region. It's not the New York Stock Exchange where everyone and their mother from Earth to Mars is, is trading stocks on that same platform and like, mm -hmm. you know, secondary, tertiary, you know, private exchanges and whatnot. But like, for example, if we're talking about the Kuwait Stock Exchange, most of the activity on the Kuwait Stock Exchange is coming from Kuwaitis. And if it's not happening, if, if it's not coming from Kuwaitis, it's coming from other Gulf states. Like the number mm -hmm. of people investing in KSE stocks from like Tokyo is effective. It's asymptotal to zero. Yeah. Right. So in, in countries like the U S um, and even, even in Europe, even in, in, in China, most recently, you know, the venture scene was born after the layer one industry had been around for decades. Right. Mm, so, so the layer one industries had time to kind of figure out what worked and what didn't through just creative destruction. Yeah, and, and also demand yeah. for their stock was kind of very diverse, very wide, and there are differing kind of debt appetite, sorry, different risk appetites uh, amongst people participating in the markets. Risk appetite mm -hmm. among, you know, a homogenous body like you have here, uh, for example, then th there's really no risk that's tolerable. I mean, people want dividend mm -hmm. yielding, safe and steady, government backed, a large portion, a large proportion of government revenue, that kind of thing. So in, in countries like Africa, for example, where, yeah, they were still at their layer zero when tech began to kind of spring up, mm -hmm. um, what you saw was 
some of the tech that was that was coming up in that ecosystem was basically leapfrogging the country forwards. So, for example, like instead of like an American style ACH automated clearinghouse payment mechanism among the banks reaching critical mass and existing for years and years, they just skipped to fintech. Oh, I see what you mean. I think there was a it's like there, there was an interview a while ago with Elon Musk talking about how, you know, these these like developing regions kind of went through the same thing where, you know, they went straight to the mobile phone. They didn't really go through a phase where they had landlines or, or, or telegraphs or anything yeah. like that. So right, we're right. seeing that happen, but on a grander scale, basically. Yeah. So now, okay, to, to bring this all back down to earth and talk about real world, real world examples, um, mm -hmm. you know, th there have been, okay, the initial kind of round of exits that was most notable on an international scale in this region was among the F&B delivery marketplaces, right? Right, yeah. But the people buying them out were not locals. The people buying them mm -hmm. out were internationals looking for a local footprint. Right. So these internationals like Rocket Internet, for example, and Delivery Hero, um, you know, they made a number of acquisitions prior to their IPO and they went and IPO'd on a Western stock exchange where, again, you had a larger mix of investors with more liquidity, with more movement, with different, you know, risk appetites. Uh, so a banker would be able to roadshow this stock a little easier uh, than they would if they're doing it on a smaller, more kind of homogenous investor base. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, Delivery Hero ended up having a successful IPO and then did fairly well uh, for a while after, even after they had acquired equity or outright acquired a number of businesses operating in these layer zero markets. Mm -hmm. uh, occasionally, someone from the region who does not necessarily have a viable buyer in the region um, ends up going abroad for a listing. Now, one thing that's made that a little easier as of late is the concept of a SPAC, a special purpose acquisition company or vehicle, right. you know, but they call it SPAC. Mm -hmm. um, I'll give you an example. So Enrami, you know, kind of a regional uh, Spotify, if you will, oh, with uh, access okay. to a lot of Arabic catalogs, Arabic music catalogs. So, yeah. you know, Enrami was in a position where, you know, people like to talk about monopoly. But one issue that you need to avoid in order to have a vibrant tech ecosystem with sizable exits is what's called monopsony. It is the opposite of a monopoly. A monopoly is a single seller. And therefore, pricing okay. pressure is to increase. Mm -hmm. You know, they're upwards. They move prices up when there's only one seller. Right. In a monopsony, you're a single buyer. In a market with a single buyer, the pressure on pricing is downwards which means smaller so, exits, which means less so capital that, attracted. Interesting. So, so does that mean that, you know, rather than in a monopoly where the seller defi defines the price, the, because there's only a single buyer, that that single buyer says, this is how much I'm willing to pay for it. There's no one else that's going to buy this. So you have to right. say yes. And you know what's the mm -hmm. best example of that? Mm -hmm. European countries and single payer healthcare. Interesting. The reason they get to mash prices down to the ground is because no one else is buying. Oh, I see. Yeah. Yeah. See? So going back to the Enrami SPAC, you know, Enrami spac and kind of hovered around the 120, 130 million dollar um, enterprise value mark. Mm -hmm. Now that was a respectable exit for people in who had invested in this region. But you know, those multiples are not necessarily going to entice investors from outside the region. Because 130 million is basically like an average Series B now. 
Right. You know, for a relatively hot company. And, you know, at the same time, you need to convince bankers to set up shop here in this region to market deals like that. When again, that's just an average series B. So it doesn't, so I'd say like it, it, it's not enough to wet investors, foreign investors appetite specifically. Correct. Because foreign investors, if they're going to enter a new market, like they're spilling into Latin America and, and India now. And again, these are companies with, mm -hmm. oh, sorry, regions with layer zero and layer one industries, very diverse industries. They have diverse private capital markets, diverse public capital markets. Mm. Um, you know, that sell is a little easier for a fund manager, you know, pitching prospective investors. Right. So what is it that is ultimately going to whet the appetite of people um, being pitched opportunities to invest in managers in, say, the Middle East, North Africa region or the Sub-Saharan Africa region, knowing that we're dominated by layer zero businesses and knowing that we don't have developed capital markets? Hmm. You need large domestic incumbents. And by incumbents, you mean players or like specific companies that are big enough to attract that type of attention you need companies big enough to attract MA attention and companies mm -hmm. big enough to actually warrant an ipo on a major exchange with investors from pretty much everywhere interesting so e-commerce which took off in africa thanks to jumia had investors from pretty much everywhere and they did not list uh on a local exchange well, i'm pretty sure they're mm -hmm. cross-listed across a number of exchanges but basically if you're an investor in new york then jumia stock is very accessible Right. Yeah. So <clears throat> what's going to fix the issue locally? Well, in terms of in terms of getting M&A interest and making sure prices continue to come up, I think the best example was Uber acquiring Karim. Yeah. You know, the 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 Uber acquisition of Karim was I mean, there was a number of motivating factors. One, like Uber wanted to expand their footprint and kind of consolidate the market share here in the Middle East. And on, you know, select markets that they were looking at, like Pakistan and so on. Yeah. And they absolutely needed local talent to do it effectively. And I think that's one of the main draws for internationals to acquire in the region. The idea that you can't yeah. copy paste the model and just, you know, kick over your employees from London over to Dubai and expect everything to work just as swimmingly as it did in the UK. Right. So, so does that mean that for, you know, say if I was a founder in the MENA region, and I was trying to build a company, um, and this is horrible, but this is just for the sake of example, um, for the sole purpose of being acquired by a foreign company. Mm -hmm. if, if a strategy I take is I want to take an existing business model in the US or in Europe and twist it so where it's, or, or sorry, modify it so where it works with the tradition, the culture, the market of the MENA region. Mm -hmm. um, is, is that basically what, you know, is, is that the spark that needs, the, the spark that Mina needs in order to start getting, um, or at least heading in the well, right yeah, direction? Well, yeah, because as is eventually. the case with Karim, then mm -hmm. you're going to want people to look into this region to expand footprint, consolidate market share. Because also, let's be honest, that one of the main reasons Uber wanted to buy Karim was to knock out competition. Right, yeah. Because the competition had gotten you know pretty intense in places like saudi and the emirates mm -hmm. and bahrain even so yeah despite being a smaller market obviously but um True. you know and uh you know that's one way for emerging markets to have an appeal the other way is basically basically to be a, a net exporter of technology 
So what we're seeing among the tech startups here and in sub-Saharan Africa is they want to serve local markets. In Africa, it's a little, I mean, in Africa, the market is fairly sizable. If you're talking about all of sub-Saharan Africa from basically the borders of Egypt and Algeria all the way down to South Africa. I mean, that's a big mm -hmm. growing market with a growing middle class. Um, you can build a sizable business over there, similar to, you know, Flutterway, for example, in the payment space. Right. In the GCC region, for example, the Gulf region of Arabia, the market is large, but for certain things, it could be relatively small compared to opportunities elsewhere, you know, nearby. For, for example, you know, in India or in Europe would be a larger market for, you know, a specifically B2B payments company, for example. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think it's that. And then the, so, the, the other, oh, sorry, go for it. No, I was going to say, so how do those guys grow? Well, you're going to grow when you focus on the technology being your core offering and you becoming a net exporter of technology. In other words, if you start a business in Dubai and 90% of your employees are engineers, if you can get serious revenue coming from India, then your geographic location doesn't matter. And you as a yeah. MENA company can be acquired for your technology and for your footprint for an enterprise value that is far, far larger than what would have been possible if you were only serving your immediate area. Yeah. This is this is purely like something we've actually seen before in, in, in like specifically Eastern Europe and, and just Europe in general with Spotify, with Pipedrive, a lot of these companies that um, exist in specific areas that might not have the biggest tech hub, but solve solutions on a global scale. Right. And, you know, software is, you know, one of the easiest things you can distribute. So once you develop something that hits a specific pain point for teams, regardless of where they're at. So right. you know, biggest example being like, if I, if I was in Kuwait and I had a team of Kuwaiti engineers and I built a solid, like work from home communications platform, uh -huh. um, it's not really going to matter where that is. It's just going to be, you know, our, our customers might as well come from the moon. If, if, if people on the moon have an issue with that. Yeah. Don't insult moon people. They're sponsors of this podcast, but um, <laughs> right. Yeah. And, you know, another thing to be mindful of is, is, you know, the last round of major F&B acquisitions in this region of all the F&B delivery guys, what was their headcount of engineers versus non-engineers? They had a lot of non-engineers because, you know, they had an expensive on the ground, uh, you know, expensive in terms of human capital uh, logistics operation. Uh, right. right. So they're not yeah, all yeah. engineers, which kind of limits the ability of that company to sell, say, outside of the borders in which it operates. Obviously, you can't easily scale an F&B business as if you were, say, Slack. You would actually need to go to the location, incorporate, put boots on the ground, hire tons of people, purchase vehicles. You know, it, it's asset heavy. Or even if it's, mm -hmm. there are assets involved, is my point, as opposed to yeah. just, you know, send me an email and I'll send you a link. Um, right. Yeah. So as the headcount shifts away from offline personnel to online personnel, to more engineers, more software people, more UI UX people, then you mm -hmm. become a company that can export its technology elsewhere. And I think that will also help grow the Middle East, North Africa, uh, you know, tech footprint worldwide, which is when we start focusing on churning out more engineers domestically. Yeah. I, th I think that's, that's the actually interesting, like dilemma that I've sort of seen, um, just thinking about getting into the startup scene here in Los Angeles, but also while you were talking just now and mentioning sort of the the, the areas of development that the MENA region kind of needs to work on, I, I, I can't help but notice this clash between engineering and business and how founders view them or prioritize them as they start uh, different ventures. So 
one of the biggest examples being, you know, the F and B industry. Um, there weren't necessarily a lot of tech innovations that came out of any of the F and B businesses that at least you and I saw growing up in Kuwait. But if you see, you know, then in going back to the F and B point, it's because a lot of the tech was either outsourced or a lot of it there was not much of a focus on it because it was the businesses and the deals that they needed to to, to focus on. Um, so that basically allowed those founders or enabled those founders to run into the human constraint issues of needing to have boots on the ground, like you said, in order to go to these different areas. Um, I think that the, the, the one thing that we're missing is a focus on tech and the only way that you can use tech to sort of leapfrog and build a sizable domestic incumbent is if we stop that flow of <clears throat> copying existing business models, because the, the, the copying of existing business models is only going to create the same product. So on the engineering side, it is going to be very similar and there's not going to be a lot of room for innovation. So that's why if you head into a market that's, first of all, global, and second of all, has um, a lot of room for creative destruction and just pure chaos on the engineering side. That's where I see the opportunity for the MENA region to start exporting a ton of tech. Right. And I saw something in the news, this is my final point, of, you know, it, it's starting to show some evidence that MENA and Sub-Saharan Africa are beginning to uh, change up the MNA playbook a little bit. So mm -hmm. M&A as an exit was one thing, but M&A for growth to create a larger incumbent is relatively newer. So Helium right. Health of Nigeria um, announced mm -hmm. the acquisition of Medi. Um, Helium Health is uh, a Nigerian company um, that focuses really on uh, health tech. They're pretty well known for their core electronic medical records, kind of EMR services and hospital management solutions in Sub-Saharan Africa. And they've rolled mm -hmm. out a number of other services like Helium Pay, Helium Credit, uh, Helium Doc. Um, first two are self-explanatory. The last one is a new data analytics service. Right. Um, but, you know, one way Helium Health was kind of lacking is they didn't really have appointment booking, marketing, and management information systems um, within their offerings. And their acquisition of Medi, A, is evidence of, you know, a new appetite for horizontal acquisitions uh, in the region. Uh, be indicative of larger incumbents that are, are very likely to be good IPO targets at some point in the next, say, five years. Mm -hmm. And um, also, you know, people are acquiring to grow their footprint locally. And that conceptually right. is not uh, very, you know, deeply rooted here. So maybe this is the, the beginning of a major change. But, uh, you know, congratulations to Helium Health and to Medi. Um, you know, seeing acquisition activity between East Africa and the GCC is new. It's definitely not something we've seen a lot of. And I think it's a massive, massive step in the right direction. And, uh, you know, it's it's good for the ecosystem. Yeah, I, I really hope it's 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 one of the good things where you see and hope for it's 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 a good ripple effect that you want to hope for. Right. If, if you notice a lot of these acquisitions going in between the GCC and and in Africa, and then hopefully soon, you know, maybe India gets into it as well. Just the 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 East basically collaborating to leapfrog different industries, and instead of having, like, say for example, instead of the GCC 
building a collection of layer one industries and then having them simmer or like figure stuff out for the next couple of decades. If there's any way that Africa or India can kind of expedite that process through their experiences, that might actually be very, very helpful for the GCC to kind of like leapfrog and kind of catch up to to where the where where the Europe um Europe industries, European industries are at, where the US industries are at. Um but but kind of go but going back and like of course I'm being very biased here and um it's it's like my inner kind of head of engineering coming out, but there's there's gotta be a focus on newer industries because that's where the tech that's where the, the opportunity to create new tech and export new technology is. Uh you know, I'm I'm just I think most of the issues with uh, our market and neighboring market can simply be solved by um, A, reversing the little brain drain that occurs, and B, having a lot more incentives in place to get a lot more people into engineering, um, because that creates much more robust industries over the long term and you know mm -hmm. gives them the ability to grow much, much faster than those who are constrained by assets. So Right. Yeah, I think the 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 one very like promising thing that we've seen recently is um um, you know, the, the, a friend of, of, of both of ours, um, Ahmed Al-Marafi, and his like participation in the One Million Arab Coders Initiative that I think the UAE is headed right now. Right. Um, or is that the head at? I mean, that's a, a beautiful thing to be a part of, honestly, because you have you, you virtually have an entire region of the world that is just for some reason blocked off from it. And it's only now that we're slowly trying to ease into it, let people know that, you know, all these services that you're using, like you, you know, your kids are using Instagram and TikTok and Snapchat, and like those work because people build them, and this is how you build them. Like once you give them that foundation, I think it's going to open up the room for so much more things to come in. Um, and and I totally see an initiative like that eventually creating um, those large incumbents or playing a big factor in creating those large incumbents. And so, anyways. I, I want to focus on that last point you made when you're talking about, um, you know, what needs to happen to the MENA region. And I think it's basically regarding the need for there to be more domestic incumbents. So looking historically looking at, at, at the MENA region, um, with the exception of the F&B and maybe e-commerce indus industries aside, just like you said, market sizes are quite small and have only now begun to embrace tech-enabled workflows. So the chances for explosive growth that we've seen with most consumer or SaaS products in Europe or in the US are kind of slim at this stage. Um, because you're talking about a region that up until recently has been using you know, physical files, photocopies, and just very manual workflows in both the public and private sectors. Um, so where you know the, the lesson you kind of take from that is, is it's gonna be very difficult for any company to go from zero to one in this region as it stands today. Um, just like we talked about, because there are a lot of specific skill sets that need to be put in the minds of everyone in the, in the region, generally speaking, but then more, more to that, when companies are formed, there needs to be focuses on the right department. Um, not for that business specifically, but for the greater good of that region, um, i.e., of course, me being very biased saying engineering, but rather than listing out kind of why things have not gone the way we, we are. Um, we've been talking a lot about creative destruction for the couple of past episodes in this show. So right. I'm really liking that because, you know, what creative destruction did to the U S is something that 
you know, I, I, I think other were, other countries can really take notes from or like tear a couple pages from their book. Um, so what I kind of wanted to do was to kind of understand how can we take creative destruction and tweak it so that it enables the creation of a domestic, a large domestic incumbent in the main region. So what I kind of did was I kind of sat down, I thought a little bit, um, procrastinated, of course, because I was writing tests and that's a very mindless, painful thing to do for your product. But I wrote a couple of hypotheticals, basically, of, you know, very basic strategies that founders in the MENA region can do um, that will enable them to eventually grow as a, a, a large domestic incumbent. So, um, like, let, let's let's get started with the first one, right? So, a SaaS startup in the MENA region builds a solid enterprise product, super good, unique tech, uh, solves a global problem, um, and the engineering and the product teams are completely based in the GCC or in the MENA region. Um, However, there's a sales team that's optimized specifically for other international businesses and in other regions that do business with uh, MENA corporations on a daily basis. So specifically speaking, like say for example, if there's a specific industry where a lot of MENA companies in the industry sell to European businesses, I wanna make a product that's built completely by MENA engineers and product people with a sales team that can take it and sell it to those European businesses. So that means in the short term, the only ties that the company has uh, to the MENA region are its HQ, of course, and its product engineering team, just to ensure the fact that the incumbent that pops up is truly domestic. By um, the way, there, there's, a com there's a country that already operates this way, mm -hmm. uh, Israel. Uh, oh, their entire... Right their entire tech ecosystem has to sell into the US and Europe to achieve any scale because what are they going to do locally? Right. That's exactly it. I, I think, and, and one of the biggest like tech hubs right now in the media region is in Israel. So uh, going, going back to that hypothetical, and I think, you know, now that we have that in mind, it's actually going to seem very, very similar, but after a few leads turn into successful sales and heavy usage on, on, like overseas or abroad, the region's going to start noticing that a lot of the foreign businesses that they talk with or work with are using the specific product for their business. So in the MENA region, um, curiosity is going to start peaking. So if I'm if I'm some random MENA corporation who's been doing business with this one shop in in France, for for example, and I notice that all of a sudden, um, any email, any report they generate, uh, all the PDFs that they send me have a little powered by some random company name. I'm like, what's, what's this? this? This might be a little helpful for me. So at that point, once curiosity peaks, you basically have a network where all of your nodes are European or uh, let's say foreign, foreign customers, and all of them have weak ties or connections to MENA companies that do daily business with them. So to repaint this last point from the founder's perspective, as a business, you have interested MENA companies to run customer discovery interviews with and the revenue from European or foreign companies to take action on the intel from those interviews. So your goal is to basically build a modification to your current product or a new face or side to it 
that makes it such that the only way for those MENA companies to continue doing business with those foreign ones is to hop onto your product. Right. So what that basically requires is that sales team, that marketing team that's basically focused on selling to uh, foreign companies, all of a sudden is turned inward. And this is where that creative destruction comes in because this is like an, an, an in my honest opinion type of thought, but the only way I think creative destruction can be embraced in places like this that are radically, let me rephrase that, that are up until this point resistant to very destructive change in daily flows is changing the surroundings that enable that flow to exist. So one of the biggest examples is like, say, um, if I'm doing business with another company, but that other company does everything digitally, but they have an exception for me where I can mail them stuff. Um, my goal as a founder in the in the MENA region is to start is is to 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 kill that surrounding is to go hey foreign company that's making the exception here's this product that's miles like by far extremely better than any any single workflow you're doing um, you have to kill this exception and you have to start using our product because it it'll just allow you to do business more more effectively and. Once that happens and that exception is cut off from the media corporation, all of a sudden they're like, well, maybe I have to change something. Maybe I have to yeah. adapt or do something. Um, so so that's when it comes in of like the, the surroundings need to change gradually before the actual, like the, the, before the founder would go for the head, if that makes any sense. You know, there just needs um, to be the death of uh, an analog method almost by decree for things to really move forward. Um, right, you know, th like That's what exactly. happened. What happened with uh, payments as soon as COVID happened, right? So pre-COVID, yep. e-commerce was straight cash. You would have to to like you know count money at the door and hand it to the guy before they gave you your stuff. Um, mm -hmm. Like imagine the friction we've done away with simply by switching to online payment, or just more so to online payment, which was not the primary way of paying prior to COVID. And yeah. now that COVID has eased in a lot of parts of the Gulf and the Middle East. Uh, people are not switching back to cash. Nope. Yeah, exactly. Now, now you get, now you start getting those um, those credit or debit cards where it's like tap to pay, where you have um, you know hopefully soon we get to see like a, a Mina equivalent of Venmo, uh, where you could just like send something with a tap of a button, pretty pretty simply. Um, so so that's you know that was basically the first hypothetical. So where. You basically use, you kill the surroundings that enable that outdated flow, and then you use something along the lines of network effects that basically get this following message across to the customers that you want to target. Um, you're not able to do business in your industry because everyone you care about and everyone you're going to make money from is on this product. Right. Yeah. Like that, that's basically like the, the, the effect that this, this, this hypothetical product of course would have, um, would kind of be like a, like a, and I'm kind of like getting into your lane here. So please, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's, I, it's I will kind do of so like, violently. yes, please do. Um, <laughs> as, as, as a, as a founder in a, in a, in a, in a stagnant industry, I need slaps in the face as feedback. Um, right. but, um, basically if I'm a, if I'm getting into the finance space or like if I'm trying to be a financial analyst, um, I'm not going to get far if I don't know how to use Bloomberg terminal. Right. right. 
Um, what Bloomberg terminal sales messages isn't necessarily we have it's it's no longer we have the best data we have the prettiest features mm -hmm. we have the best UI because I've seen the UI and it's it's freaking horrible yeah um, but the 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 main message that comes across is like your boss uses this everyone else's boss uses this everyone else uses this period so you don't really have an option here you can shame people and into adoption basically. <laughs> pretty much like as, as as scary as that sounds as as like aggressive of a strategy as that sounds like i think that's how creative destruction happens right mm -hmm. um but i going mean back to a lot of a lot of things pass through that phase i mean at, at one point like in the mid 80s in in kuwait and in bahrain from stories that i've heard firsthand from people who were there um, mm -hmm. Like a lot of trading activities happen. A lot of trading activity happening was either with the slips, like you know those white or pink pieces of paper uh -huh. that you filled out in order, and you gave it to a guy, and the guy had to run to another guy, or you could put it in at the uh, the terminal you had on your giant box IBM. Mm -hmm. um, and either one was an acceptable format until one day, you know, by executive decree, uh, you know the the wh whoever's running the trading operation would tell all traders. All right, shred the booklets. Everyone's going straight to the computer. And if you don't know how to use one, find someone who does and let them teach you. And yep. you know they'll fight. Exactly uh, they'll it. fight at first, but uh, yeah, I mean, adoption by decree works. Maybe it's not the most democratic method, but in the long term, I think all it did was accelerate a pre-existing trend and not really break anyone out of their old habits and put them into anything new. Exactly. Yeah, I, I think it's like. It, especially looking at developing countries where people are used to a specific routine and flow and they're just not willing to change from it. Um, decrees are just kind of a given. Like It's a very powerful tool that, of course, you can eventually abuse, but it... it By the way, the, the, decree, the decree actually applies to the payment thing that I was talking about, because keep in mind, a lot of governments banned handling of cash and therefore right. online payments yeah. took off. Exactly. And, and you know, we, we saw this with Kuwait, of course, where, you know, you had, at least for the, for the, for the year that I was there, it was when you order something, um, you have to pay by card, and then the, um, the bag is in another bag, and the bag is dropped at your door. Like, that, that was the quickest reaction that I've seen from any MENA business to a decree or to a, to a new law, basically. Um, yeah. And Lord knows what's that's gonna, what that's going to do when you start applying it to payments to you know if if there's a prop tech industry in the MENA region to health tech to anything like that um and that again goes back to the whole creative destruction point that we, we we've been talking about um so so that's one thing right we have the product that needs to be built with an hq and an engineering team in the MENA region and you know you use you use its surroundings to slowly kill the manual process that you're going after as as the, the the company's mission basically there's another hypothetical that i kind of typed out not really thought out but we've briefly mentioned it when you were talking about what it takes in order to build something that's able to export technology and what i'm referring to here is the spotify and pipe drive and the readle example so all those three that i just mentioned spotify pipe drive and readle are not are all companies that sell to customers internationally and globally, but are all based in very small areas of the world where there aren't really hubs. So um, 
I think Spotify is based in Sweden. Pipedrive is based in somewhere in Eastern Europe. So is Riedel. Um, we've seen this happen with countless other products simply because they're the, the problem that they're trying to solve is, first of all, something that everyone experiences. And second of all, its solution is not that difficult to build and it's very easy to distribute. And I think, you know, reflecting that to, you know, the, the, looking at all these companies while I, was, while I was typing this out, the first thing that came to mind is like, you know, the US is, and, and the US is a very big hub of um, indie hackers, very tiny people, uh, not physically, but like from, from a career perspective, um, just people who build and like hack together solutions that solve a problem in one specific like um, sub community, uh, a specific trade, something like that. And the first thing that came to mind was like, why hasn't that happened in the MENU region? Um, we have a lot of very great coders. We have, um, you know, it's connected to the world in terms of social media and in terms of, um, you know, having the resources to travel and experience other things. So why have those two paths not crossed yet? Um, where, you know, you have the itch to build something, you have the resources to view problems on a global scale. Um, what, what has kept those two paths apart, if that makes any sense? Um, you know, and the biggest example right now is like with, with the pandemic, so many industries, primarily the work from home industry, um, came up and, you know, I know a lot of founders in my network over here that capitalized on the fact that those industries started booming and are now raising, you know, tens of millions of dollars in single rounds. Um, and when I talk to them and when I look at the solutions they're building, it's not necessarily something that's specific to this region like it's not specific to la it's not specific to the us in general like it, it could have totally been built in a kuwait a saudi arabia in, in egypt and in india honestly i think and, there's there's one limiting factor yeah um you know as much as people love to parrot the stereotype that everyone here is like so rich they wipe with hundred dollar bills um uh there's, you know, the access to capital, especially risk capital, venture capital, is uh, not as democratized as, say, access from, you know, the founders' base to some other countries' um, consumers. Uh, it's it's really hard. It's a lot easier to be based in Kuwait and creating a product that I can then turn around and sell to, say, Spain, as a SaaS product, for example, than it is for me to attract capital to continue building in Kuwait and growing and scaling. Um, right. one of the issues is the local VCs, at least in my experience from having worked here are much more likely to back something in the F and B or the transport space, because historically those are the two sectors that have generated very large enterprise values, um, outside mm -hmm. of, uh, or actually like, you know, if you look at the private equities, same thing. If you look at the venture capital, same thing, like, you know, Kitopi, the ghost kitchen and, and Kareem. And, you know, those are the unicorns that you're seeing here. You're not seeing unicorns in SAS. You're not seeing unicorns in FinTech that really mm -hmm. hasn't caught on here. So like, you know, from the, the data, the VCs are much more likely to, to build something in F and B and build it in transport logistics. And again, both of them are asset heavy and require your presence in the region. So, right. um, yeah, it's just, uh, it's hard to, to get the capital and it's also very difficult um, to get foreign capital to invest in one of the non-target regional markets, so which basically means anything outside Dubai. Um, mm. You know, there are different laws, different 
kind of social socioeconomic norms that uh, you know a Western investor may not necessarily be um, completely comfortable with. Um, so yeah, there are limiting factors, but that, uh, that you know that doesn't apply to these businesses that you would kind of sort of see listed on microacquire, like you know the micro SaaS businesses. I mean, there's right. thousands yeah. of those, and they could be built by teams of two to three people instead of like you know thirty or fifty. And um, I, I think we're in the very early days of starting to see those kind of butt up and start to sell uh, in other parts of the world. Um, there is one that um, I actually invested in on behalf of my prior employer um, called uh, Captain Panel. And that was a SaaS business that was built for, um, you know, water sports activity um, operators. Uh, right. to manage bookings and handle the in and outs the ins and outs of, of you know day-to-day -day operations um, so that started in Kuwait moved to Dubai ended up selling pretty much all over the world but they were lucky in that one of the main financiers was one of the main um, you know kind of global investors in distributed teams in distributed teams and businesses which was 500 oh I see um, so people who were not necessarily in a 500 cohort may find it much, much more difficult to operate on that basis. But again, you're starting to see movements in the right direction. And I know I'm going to get, you know, kicked in the jimmies for this, but if, if this launches as a web three project, um, mm -hmm. where you can raise from your community, I think that'll get a little easier. But again, you go back to the legislation is still kind of gray on that front in this region. So we don't necessarily know how that's going to play out. So I don't think it's a question of will it or will it not happen. I think it's a question of what can be done um, to catalyze it. Right. Yeah. And I think I think I I sort of mentioned a very one option that might work, which is just um, we can we can stand on the backs or it's like stand on the shoulders of the existing giants in this area, which is the specific you know um, very big fintech industries in Africa, the very big. Diff different industries in India, that there's definitely an opportunity to leverage them through either mergers and acquisitions or just simply tech and talent or just any sort of partnership that can catapult the, the, the you know, specifically the GCC or maybe the MENA region into um, becoming a large incumbent in, in this, this part of the world, basically. I think, I think we need deeper ties with India as far as tech is concerned. Yeah. I think it should be easier for Indian entrepreneurs to look at the GCC as an expansion market, and it should be easier for the GCC to really deploy capital in India and just kind of bridge the gaps between talent and capital access in between the two countries. So there's a lot of international capital flowing into India right now, uh, specifically from the US um, and from China. Um, but I see no reason why the GCC shouldn't be um, a, a major contributor to the to the uh, you know investment ecosystem in India. And on top of that, um, there's already I mean millions of Indian expats. Uh, currently in the GCC region, and I don't see why we can't start welcoming welcoming in uh, you know more tech savvy folks. Um, right. You know, if, if it, it could be you know just the way the the commerce uh, relationship is set up of if you want access to deep pocketed consumers in the Middle East region, um, mm -hmm. you're going to have to put a base in the region and have a number of people here and make sure that spillover effect of um, you know, tech know-how and product know-how actually, you know, helps build up the local base of talent so that they can maybe, you know, one day return the favor, start launching in India, you know, right. businesses that That's would exactly launch in MENA launching in India.
Uh-huh. So, you know, this is yeah. not going to happen in six months or a year. This is something that will play out over a decade. But um, oh, I, right. still, yeah. I still wish there was more being done to catalyze that movement. Yeah, and I think it, it you know, that that area up until this, like this area up until this point is very, or tends to be kind of risk averse. So I I, it, I, I think one big factor behind the, the, the um, avoidance of risk is purely just there being a gray zone in the laws. So uh, in my opinion, it kind of starts with the legislation and with the initiatives that happen at the top and seeing how that trickles down into um, people with the resources who just go, okay, what can I do now that these new laws exist? And now that that formerly gray area is no longer gray and it's clear what I can do and what I can't do. Yeah. So there's still work that needs to be done. Also, how much do you bet that after this airs, we're going to get all the like, you know, hate mail and DMs? Like, why did you insult the country? I didn't insult the country. Listen, listen to the <laughs> podcast. I'm giving you ideas for growth. I'm trying to invest. Um, right. yeah. yeah, I don't know. There's always, um, look, what I've realized is no matter what you do, there is someone somewhere prepared to be offended by something. That is true. That's very true. I and think it's, it's always going to be like fantastically that. Yeah. annoying. <laughs> I mean, if, it, yeah, just get, sound, for the lack of a better phrase, I mean, saying stuff to just, saying th- like opinions about existing systems that are just need development or have a lot of areas for development um, is definitely going to give you a, an, 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 a bad reaction from a couple of people who are benefiting from the way it is right now. Right. Right. Um, or nationalists who don't really want to think anything through before, uh, you know, exploding with outrage. So, right. Exactly. I think, uh, it's just, uh, just, just thoughts, just, just thoughts being thrown across the table. So just thoughts. Anyhow, I need to go, um, search every hard drive I've been, uh, using over the last (laughs) five years for a private key. Um, right. I desperately need in order to afford my next few months of living expenses. Um, <laughs> what are you up to? Uh, honestly, nothing, nothing special from my end. I mean, it, it's, it's, uh, kind of one of those weekends when it's in between two very stressful weeks. So I, I kind of, I'm, I'm on purpose just turning my mind off for, for, for today. Yeah. Um, I've been getting into this routine of, uh, going to this place called the yum, yum donuts just getting a single donut, a coffee, and then just driving down to the beach and just putting Funny. on a podcast. <laughs> yeah, and, cr- <laughs> and crying. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of crying. Involved, I can imagine but, your um, gray Jeep, you know, double parked, and just kind of hear donuts. <laughs> 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 then, uh, then I get caught with donuts and coffee, and then I get charged with impersonating an officer. What's funny is your mugshot will have like white powder all over the nose and like, I swear it was powdered sugar. It's donuts. <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I think the time at which they get me and then the way I look is, is going to make it seem like it's yeah. not, it's not powdered sugar. By the way, you're, you're lucky. You're lucky that you're 10 time zones away. If I were there right now, I'd be waking you up at 5am to do squats. <laughs> well, Hey, I'm, I'm actually, yeah, I've, I've been talking with, uh, with, with Pat, our, our co-founder and CEO, and he's, uh, we're, we're, we're thinking of getting back into the, um, the LMU kind of alumni gym. Do it. Because, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm actually kind of looking forward to it. Cause, um, the last time Lord I saw you squat that. is because you dropped a butterfinger. <laughs> no, I think, I think that's how, uh, 
<laughs> there was this meme of like how Steam was made, where uh, <laughs> someone dropped a CD and just couldn't pick it up. It's like, oh well, let's help build the platform. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. All, All right. right. Until next Alrighty. time. Indeed. Um, oh, last thing, like, uh, listeners. So I am not going to be conducting the interview next time. That'll be all Mo, but we will be back for the regular by next Monday. Yep, yep. So uh, to stay posted on all the most recent stuff, follow at Venture Bros Show on Twitter. Aziz and I's personal accounts are in the bio. Feel free to follow those as well. If there's any way, you, if you want to DM us for recommendations, for guests, or if you'd like to be on the show uh if you have a startup or or some experience that you'd like to talk about that would be very very awesome and we'd be and if you'd like to dm dick pics please send those to mo he's single (laughs) later